Hello and welcome to the forgotten art of ambling. Sydney is close to its best on a crisp, sunny July morning. The winter solstice has passed and the promise of longer days lies ahead. The world seems good and fair to look upon. It's an ideal day for an amble. Ambling is a phrase that was initially only applied to horses, but it is a most appropriate activity for we humans, particularly in the madcap world in which we now seem to live. It really means nothing more than to move or go at an easy pace. It's a word that has come down to us from Middle English and at an early time from the old French ambler. Ultimately, its root lies in the Latin ambulare, meaning simply to walk. Ambling around seems to have gone out of fashion, but if it's combined with an observant eye and a sense of curiosity, then it can reap its rewards. Robert Louis Stevenson put the virtue of walking somewhat slower very well in an essay entitled Walking Tours. He spoke of the benefit at the end of the day and said, not for him, the mild, luminous evening of the temperate walker. He was, of course, referring to the loss suffered by those who walked too quickly. You can thus take comfort in the fact that there are probably rewards of rambling, hopefully at the end of the day. Just before we leave Robert Louis Stevenson, it's worthy of note that his life only stretched from 1850 to 1894. Uh, it's a theme I'll touch on from time to time, but it's notable of the extraordinary achievements of people, particularly in the 19th century, who did so much in what seems to us now a very short life indeed. True it is, of course, that by the measure of life expectancy of uh, those years, it was probably a reasonably, reasonably full term. Uh, G.K. Chesterton once said, there's no such thing in earth as an uninteresting subject. The only thing that could exist is an uninterested person. Not a bad line. A good spot to start an amble on a day such as this is at St Jude's Fountain, which sits on the corner of Allison Road and Church Street at Ranwick. The fountain was carved out of sandstone, which was quarried at Piermont, and was the work of a craftsman called Walter McGill. The intent of it was to provide a source of water supply to the local people, and it was opened in October 1866. Prior to that, the water had been supplied from St Jude's Well, which was situated not far from the fountain and had been dug and put into use in 1858. Unfortunately, it soon dried up. The three basins of St Jude's Fountain were fed from an underground spring. This fountain represented the first formal public water supply for the area. The well had in fact been positioned about 66 feet due south of the fountain on the western corner of Church Street and Allison Road. The residents used it, but it was also used by travellers and their horses on the Randwick Road, as Allison Road was then known. We will return to Walter McGill in a while, for it was he who carved the fine statue of Captain Cook, which is where our amble today ends. He was a Scottish-born sculptor, mason and phrenologist who'd been involved in the carving of various Sydney monuments, including work on Darlinghurst Jail and the allegorical figures on the GPO building on its George Street facade. It is also said that McGill had a significant input to the Woolloomooloo gates of the Royal Botanic Gardens, which were erected in 1873. 
His interests as a phrenologist led him to casting the death mask of the executed bushranger Captain Moonlight in 1880. That mask is presently in the Police and Justice Museum collection situated at the bottom of Phillip Street in Sydney. He died at his Darlinghurst home on the 2nd of July 1881, the death resulting from an earlier accident where unfortunately he had collided with a horse in Paddington. Such were the dangers of these days. From the fountain, I suggest you amble up the hill of Allison Road towards its intersection with Avoca Street. As you walk up that now very busy thoroughfare, it's interesting to reflect back to what things were like in the very early years of the establishment of the colony at Sydney. The current line of Allison Road, where it passes along the generally southern edge of Centennial Park, crosses an area which in the early 19th century was called the Lachlan Water System. The system was used in very early times for industrial purposes. Indeed, the first land grants in that area of the Lachlan system were made as early as 1823. In 1815, an emancipist called Simeon Lord had erected what was called a fulling mill for cloth on a creek at what is now called Botany. He'd received a grant of 600 acres of land on the shores of Botany Bay. The creek which he used was part of the same water system as the Lachlan swamps and streams. Another early grantee of land was another emancipist called Samuel Terry, who was granted 570 acres in the general area of what would now be called Kensington and Kingsford. He'd been convicted at the Lancaster Assizes in 1800 for stealing and was transported to New South Wales for seven years. Soon after arrival, he was industrious, he opened a shop and later an inn. In 1810, he married a widow called Rossetto Madden and acquired by marriage her considerable property. He became one of Sydney's early land speculators and ended up owning property in the Hawkesbury, the Illawarra, Yass and other outlying counties. His house was between what we now call George and Pitt Street in the general area of Angel Place. It's interesting to note that in 1819, Terry announced in the Sydney Gazette that he'd erected a water mill on the stream running from South Head to Botany and was producing flour, bran and pollard. It was probably a bit of an exaggeration to say that the stream rose at South Head, but it certainly rose in the swamps in what we now call Centennial Park. Given the existence of the Lachlan Swamp System, it's not surprising to note that much of the land in that catchment was sandy, uh, complete with some quicksand, it is said, and also covered in low scrub. The area of the Lachlan Swamps had been reserved by Lachlan Macquarie in 1811 and nominated as the Sydney Common. He correctly foresaw the likely need for the use of this water for the developing town of Sydney. That proved to be true, for in 1827 the Lachlan Swamps became Sydney's second water supply when Busby's Bore was constructed between then and 1837. The same system also went on to supply Sydney's third water supply, which was the Botany Swamps, and they were used from 1859. I'll return to that theme of Sydney's water supply systems another day, but the remnants of those Botany Swamps can still be seen around the airport area. 
the difficulty of traversing the area of the Lachlan system was well illustrated by the description given by a musician, Isaac Nathan, who had been enticed to come to live in Randwick by a gentleman called Simeon Pearce, to whom we'll return in a minute. In the Sydney Morning Herald of March 1855, he complained that the road to the classic village of Randwick has filthy gulfs in which ten vehicles had recently capsized. I imagine by now you're probably standing on the corner of Allison Road and Avoca Street tapping your feet saying, when is this bloke going to stop? I move on. The area of the shopping centre that we now know as Randwick was originally called Big Coochie, and that's a name that has a certain appeal. The origin of the name Randwick can be attributed to that same Simeon Lord. He arrived in Sydney in 1842 and began working initially as a butcher in Cumberland Street up in the rocks. Again, he married a woman called Isabella Thompson, whose father owned an inn. Once again, it was a marriage that carried with it some property and he and his wife moved to live in what we now call Randwick in 1847. He built a home called Blenheim House. Having done this, he decided to give his new locality the name of Randwick, which was taken from a village in Gloucestershire in the West Country of England. Pierce, by all accounts, was an obviously talented but also fairly forceful personality. He established strong connections in the colony and it was he who pressed the Surveyor-General, Sir Thomas Mitchell, to give the formal name of Randwick. By 1853 it was in general use. This area went on to become Sydney's first suburban council, which was proclaimed in February 1859. Its description at the time was a beautiful marine suburb. By this time, in 1859, there were about 30 houses in what we'd now called Randwick. There were 14 at Coogee. The area was very sought after and prominent people in the colony moved to live there, including a then New South Wales Premier, Stuart Donaldson, Part of the attraction is fairly obvious as one turns into a Voca Street, for it was described as a seaside location free of Sydney's pollution. Before we leave Simeon Pierce, it's worth mentioning that he had a prominent part in the establishment in 1856 of the Destitute Children's Asylum in Avoca Street at Randwick. That now sits within the grounds of the Prince of Wales Hospital. Indeed, there's a memorial garden within the grounds, which is worth hunting for, which is dedicated to children who died in that asylum. When they were building a new mental health unit in the hospital some years ago, they discovered burial sites and there were the remains of about 216 children. That large number of deaths had probably resulted from an outbreak of measles and whooping cough in the 1860s. Sadly, a report in 1856 by the government's school commissions had reported that Sydney's quays and wharfs were crowded with idle children. It went on, the most wretched of these children have no homes but sleep in the open air or in any place where they can find shelter. There was initially a refuge in Paddington, but then Simeon Pearce obtained the grant in Randwick to build the asylum. His intentions, it must be said, may not have been totally altruistic, for it was noted at the time that the building of the asylum had considerably added to land values in Randwick. 
This background helps to explain the very grand buildings which we shortly see in Avoca Street. As you make the right-hand turn, stick to the western footpath and stop to have a look at three very elegant homes with the wonderful names of Vilfracone, Clavelli and Torquay. Clearly enough, the owners must have come from the uh, southwest part of England. One can understand why it was so sought after because uh, Avoca Street there runs along a high ridge with marvellous views to the sea. If you feel like a bit of extra exercise, cross to the eastern side of Avoca Street and go down Milford Street. A short distance down on your left, you'll come upon Nugal Hall. This was built by a politician and businessman called Alexander MacArthur. This wonderful building is worth a quiet stand and look. It's said to be in the Gothic revival style and was built in about 1853. It is on the State Heritage Register. The wonderful thing is it still has a substantial part of its grounds intact. The State Heritage Register tells us that the house was designed by the then colonial architect Mortimer Lewis. It's built on land that was originally granted to a chap called Alexander Arthur in 1851. The size of the grant was initially 200 acres. What a magnificent position to build a house like that. As you wander back up Milford Street towards Avoca Street, you'll come on your left to an area which is now under the control of Our Lady of the Sacred Heart Catholic Church. Uh, you'll come upon a wonderful open garden with a large sandstone two-storey house which is called Ventnor. It's currently used as offices and meeting rooms by the church. Ventnor was built in 1858 by a chap called Edward Dawson. It's said to be, this time, in the Regency style. He sold it in 1876 to a gentleman who rejoiced under the name of George Kiss, who ran a very uh, successful horse bazaar in George Street in Sydney. Kiss went on to become a mayor of Randwick. His descendants lived on in the house until 1863, I'm sorry, to 1963, when the church acquired the land and house. It's well worth having an amble around the gardens and to enjoy the beautiful aspect that the building has down to the sea. I suggest you then wander over to the western side of the road where you'll soon come upon an old sandstone building with a statue of Captain Cook out the front. It has been used as a restaurant and other things over the years. The sandstone building was originally known as the Star and Garter Inn and was built in the 1830s was the home of a chap called Captain Watson, who was also responsible for the very striking statue of Captain Cook, which stands in that little wedge at the front. As you stand there, you can look across the road to the older part of the Prince of Wales Hospital, which was originally the home or the asylum for destitute children. If you wander around to the area between the statue and the old Star and Garter Inn, you'll note that there's an inscription on the back of the statue which reads thus. This statue was unveiled on the 27th of October 1874 by Commodore J.G. Goodenough, who was also killed in the endeavour to open up friendly intercourse with the natives of the Pacific Islands at Santa Cruz on the 11th of August 1875. This Commodore Goodenough was a very interesting person who appears to have had considerable standing in the colony, even though he'd only arrived in May 1873. 
Once again, his life was very short at uh, 45 years. James Graham Goodenough entered the Royal Navy at 14 and served in various areas, including the Pacific, off the African coast, on the east coast of South America and in the Baltics during the Crimean War. By 1856, he was on what was called the China Station and he was present at the capture of Canton in December 1857. He returned to England due to some ill health and served in the Channel Squadron until 1863. By this time, he'd reached the rank of captain and he was sent to North America as an observer of the American Civil War. He then went to the Mediterranean and was a naval attaché in various embassies for some years. In May 1873, he was appointed captain of HMS Pearl and Commodore of the Australian Station. In his short time here in Sydney, he obviously became very well liked and was held in high esteem. He sounds like a very interesting person because he was both a keen racegoer, but he was also a teetotaler. He had a moment in his life where he just decided he'd give up alcohol, and he did. He also had a strong concern for his men and uh, provided facilities uh, for seamen. His job at the Australian station was to maintain law and order amongst British subjects in the Pacific and to control their relations with Indigenous people. Whilst he was doing that at Carlisle Bay in the Santa Cruz Island, he and a number of others were wounded by poison arrows. Uh, He refused for there to be any revenge, although some huts were burnt. Uh, Unfortunately, tetanus set in, and after bidding farewell to his company, he died at sea on the 20th of August when the Pearl was just 500 miles from Sydney. He knew that two of his crew were likely to also die, and he instructed that they should be buried beside him. If you want another ramble another day, go up to uh, St Thomas's Church uh, in North Sydney, Thomas's Church of England, for there there's a stained glass window erected in his memory by public subscription. He's buried a bit further to the north, down West Street in the old St Thomas's Church Cemetery. His grave is still in reasonable condition with his two crew members buried on either side. If you walk into the front off West Street, then head towards the middle of the cemetery where there's a low dirt wall and you'll there find his his grave. There's also a bust of him in the Painted Hall at Greenwich in England and another in the Art Gallery of New South Wales. The raising of funds for the stained glass window didn't go entirely to plan and it was quite extraordinary that the governor, then Sir Hercules Robinson, made personal donations to ensure that the window could be finished. Good enough Royal Naval House was established in Sydney by public subscription to continue his welfare work for naval men. There's also a bay and an island just off the coast of Papua, which is named after him. If he'd managed to last a bit longer, he would have had the great privilege of living in Admiralty House, which was originally designed from 1885 to be the residence for the Commander-in-Chief of the Royal Navy's Australia Squadron leader. That, of course, is now the residence of the Governor-General and would have to be on one of the most prized spots in Sydney. 
There were in fact 22 holders of the office of Commander-in-Chief of the station starting in 1859 and running through until June 1913. It's interesting that none of the others, in particular the two people who preceded him, appeared to make any mark upon the uh, colony and it's interesting the force of personality. So there's just one example of details you can find uh, if you just ramble around with a curious eye. Until next time, stay well, stay happy and amble on. All the best. Mm -hmm.